You're listening to the Formed Book Club from Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. We're not going to put this online. We're recording right now. Okay. And we recorded that. So Vivian had begun the show. We're happy with that. <laughs> and uh, so Vivian is here and Joseph Pierce and myself. Uh, we're continuing with The Day is Now Far Spent by Robert Carlos Seurat. Uh, we may run out of battery on my computer before we think we are finished. If we do, we'll have an abrupt end to this. Otherwise, we'll continue. Uh, we are actually still in part one, chapter four, Acadia and the Identity Crisis. It's taken us a long time to go through this book. Why? Because there is so much that he is saying of importance on so many topics that we, we are not able to restrain ourselves from discussing it. So my next you know, thing I want to talk about is on page 148. But Joseph, do you have something before that? I do. I, I trump you. I've got, I got 144. All right. I just want to quote, uh, basically, um, uh, Cardinal Suar quotes Cardinal Ratzinger from the Ratzinger report on the uh, question of active participation in the liturgy. And I think as this is obviously a very, very important issue, I thought quoting Cardinal Ratzinger, quoting Cardinal Ratzinger, sorry, Cardinal Sarah quoting Cardinal Ratzinger on this issue might be good. So uh, towards the bottom of page 144, um, Cardinal Ratzinger says that the concept of active participation in the liturgy is no doubt correct but the way it has been applied following the council has exhibited a fatal narrowing of perspective. The impression arose that there was only active participation when there was discernible external activity, such as speaking, singing, preaching, reading, shaking hands. It was forgotten that the council also included silence under actuoso participatio. The silence facilitates a really deep personal participation allowing us to listen inwardly to the Lord's word. Many liturgies now lack all trace of this silence. And then just a little comment under that by Cardinal Seurat. Sacred music, which nevertheless was praised highly by Vatican II, was set aside in favor of utility music, songs, easy melodies, catchy tunes, etc. So I just wanted to make, you know, to, to, to quote, I don't know if we need to comment on it particularly, but, you know, that I think there was this mania um, uh, in the wake of the council, that our active participation meant clapping hands, shaking hands, and uh, generally making a noise and a racket uh, in, in church. And clearly, at the deepest level, the liturgy is meant to lift, lift our hearts and minds to God in silent prayer. Um, and I'm, I'm really pleased that Cardinal Seurat saw fit to emphasize Cardinal Ratzinger's words there. Yes, uh, I, I want to make a confession here or something which may not be a fault even, but it might. Uh, there has been, in some masses I participated in, in the Novus Ordo, a conscious effort to have silence in three different ways. When the priest says, let us pray, they'll pause for a few moments, very briefly, uh, for the collect and then something for the mass, for the prayer at the end of the mass as well. Uh, and then sometimes after the homily, there'll be a, a period of silence, but it's always quite short. Uh, and then oh, also after the gospel, and sometimes the first reading as well, there'll be a pause. Uh, 
Uh, I have not done that uh, because it seems a little artificial to me to have that moment of sense, how long is it going to last and what am I supposed to be doing and whatever. Maybe that's a mistake on my part. But uh, I'm wondering, Joseph, you, you go to the extraordinary form from more often than any of us do. Uh, where, where is the silence in the extraordinary form that you think should be somehow incorporated into the Novus Ordo? Well, I, I guess I just find that um, my that's not a challenge. Not a challenge. I, I mean, just yeah. I'm just trying to figure this thing out. Right. Well, basically, you know that um, I am uh, in silent prayer for a large part of the mass mm -hmm. as I'm following the priest in the rubrics, and I'm aware of what he's doing, uh, and I'm following what he's doing. But because it's not involving me having to actually, you know, uh, be responding verbally all the time it actually allows me to pray on a on a deeper level i just find that silence and and good sacred music you know chant um helps to lift up the mind and the soul uh in a way that just sort of having a dialogue going on doesn't do yes certainly the music and using chant uh you know or beautiful polyphony that is something which you can actually participate in by listening to or with chant especially praying uh, it may also be that if in the Novus Ordo you have the the canon in Latin, which most people don't understand immediately, that's also a time where you can reflect on the gestures, I mean, on what's taking place in the sacrifice without having to think about each word. I don't know. What, what do you think, Vivian? Well, I don't have Cardinal Rotzinger's book, Spirit of the Liturgy, in front of me to find the citation, but... He gave as a criterion for any change in the Mass, either going toward the Novus Ordo or if we're going to have a reconciliation, as Cardinal Seurat is asking, between the Novus Ordo and the Extraordinary Form. Cardinal Ratzinger gave us a beautiful criterion, and that is any change should help the person at Mass participate in the sacrifice that's being offered. In other words, to place oneself on the altar with the Lord, to place oneself with the offerings being offered to the Lord, that anything that we're doing there should be helping us to do that. And so where in the Mass there's actual pauses of, you know, constructive silence or where, I don't know. I can't answer that question, but I do know that what we're all supposed to be doing there is placing ourselves with the Lord on the altar, being given to the Father. And uh, it's true that if there's just constant commotion, uh, uh, sorry to say, a lot of the commotion is caused by all the lay activity of people in the sanctuary, but busying themselves around and distracting altar servers who don't know what they're doing. I mean, just cutting that bustle and just and creating that reverent atmosphere goes a long way for helping people to meditate on what the mass is doing and their participation in it. Well, I mean, I, yeah, think, I really think that we need to be when we're entering into the liturgy, we need to be entering to something which, which has uh, something of the numinous about it. There has to be a a mystery, and we need to be uh, entering into that mystery. It shouldn't just be sort of a a, a gathering of human beings. So I do think. You know, the aspects of the mass that are vertical, that in other words, pointed towards Christ, towards God, 
are, 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 are those aspects which you need to be accentuating and, and those which are purely horizontal where we're sort of um, aware of what each of us as a member of the congregation are doing and it needs to be downplayed more. I think that's the key thing is that we're going there for a, for, for a sacrifice, not just the re representation of our Lord's sacrifice uh, on Golgotha, but our sacrificing of ourselves in union with that's Christ right. uh, in service to God and neighbor. And that sort of numinosity, I think, needs to be a, a, a large part of what the liturgy is about. And insofar as that's lost, I think we're impoverishing ourselves. Well, I think also the at the beginning of Mass of preparation, there is an, there is an alternate, you know, antiphonal thing there where there's a musical confession of sins and the Lord be with you and with your spirit. That's how you're beginning the Mass. Then comes the Liturgy of the Word where you should be listening and, and responding, to the, I, I love the responsorial psalms. I think that is an improvement. All of those beautiful propers the, that they had for the, you know, Hallelujah uh, verses and that sort of thing were beautiful in the story of old mass. But uh, you listen to the readings and you respond briefly. And listen, and there's a homily that I think is more didactic. But there's still it's a time of listening. And that's right. when the priest, I think, should face the people and have that antiphonal relationship. But once the gifts are offered, mm -hmm. you know, then you're turning towards the Lord. And we get to the canon, and it always struck me, the priest will turn to the people and three times say, Lord be with you, lift up your hearts, it is right and just, it is truly right and just. We're now entering something really important. It's a triple, it's a triple call to prayer. The priest turns around, sings a preface, which is meant to be kind of a preparation for the fullness of the canon and then there should not be any dialogue anymore it's it's the priest speaking on our behalf to god and that to me is where it's a sacrificial part mm -hmm. uh, where the more contemplative you know insertion should be and then finally the most important part of the mass is when the body and blood of christ are offered from the bridegroom to the bride and you receive that you want some beautiful music or some silence you do not want to have handshaking or ushers guiding people listen what that i mean you just want silence at that time by that that's well now i want to go to page 148. no one will have noticed the break we just had except i have a haircut in the meantime but our battery <laughs> power went out <laughs> and i miraculously found an extra power cord that wasn't known in the house this is called tmi TMI? Too much information. Too much information. All right. We, we want to be transparent, you know. We don't want to have any meetings in the basement of the House of Congress. Uh, we want to have things all up on the main floor. So I want to go to page 148. This is the last part of the chapter called Asadia and the Identity Crisis. And he says about a third of the way down there, national bishops' conferences are useful in practice, but strictly speaking, they have no magisterial mission, colon, semicolon. They must not forget that truth. That truth is not made the result of votes, much less of the quantity of documents published, period. So that's an interesting summary of something which has been known. Well, I knew it when Father Dubach wrote an article about this back in 1970, uh, which later became a book called Motherhood of the Church, that he foresaw the difficulty with these bishops' conferences that while they had a great function of bringing regional bishops together and working on common issues, especially having to do with, with national issues and politics and so on, uh, 
that they would tend to usurp the power of the individual bishop, and bishops would then hide it behind the conference. And then a conference might believe it could issue documents on doctrine which were binding for themselves in the old church. Well, Carlos Seurat, you know, pops that balloon right here in one sentence. That's right. And I think it's related uh, to a point he made earlier uh, that I had underlined, but we didn't talk about on page 120. Um, he says, it is often said that we are seeking greater collegiality in the church. But what is the model of this collegiality, if not the apostles? And then he goes on, often people create institutions, councils, commissions to promote collegiality. Why not model our efforts on those of the apostles? If we want to form an ecclesial college, let us begin by praying together. And then he goes on with the importance of praying the divine office and that bishops should do that in their own cathedrals. And so, yes, I mean, I think what's happened with modern church structures is they've moved to more resemble the structures of other institutions, corporate structures, government structures, right? And to go back to, well, the church is not modeled on those things. And within, we use political terms to talk about the church, liberals, progressives, you know, conservatives, arch-conservatives, uh, you know. There's some correlation of, of, of sorts, but it becomes too politicized. It really does. Yeah. I think also the other problem is it also becomes anonymous. Um, we start talking in terms of faceless bureaucracies and committees and commissions, none of which there's a, a, a single name to. And I do think that we want individual bishops to be individually accountable for their dioceses uh, and, and, and for the people in their dioceses, not just hiding behind uh, you know, huge uh, organizations and bureaucracies. It, that's the problem in politics, as you rightly say. We don't want that structure being replicated in the church where everyone's hiding behind committees. Right. And haven't you noticed that documents that get produced in committees and commissions always are in the passive voice? It has been decided. It is right. now to be, you know, this kind of thing. In other words, what you're saying, Joseph, the individual hiding behind the group and not taking individual responsibility. Yes. You're I mean, you're, again, we talk about the saints and the apostles. It's the individual apostles, individual saints. And yes, they act together as the church, the magisterium of the church. But we, 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 know, we know those apostles for what they did as apostles, not for what they did as some sort of... Uh, faceless uh, committee or, 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 or college. Joseph, uh, you remember a wonderful man that we knew at Avonbury University, Jack Seitz, who was a very talented yes, man, and he helped mm -hmm. the university get accreditation. But he had a habit of saying, oh, research has shown, you know, to, to make a point. And I said, Jack, I don't want to ever hear that again. You tell me what the document is. You show me where I can find it. Just don't tell me research has shown, right. you know. Right. Anyway, that, that, that's the passive voice and the anonymity that comes from having committees and bureaucracy, you know. Yeah. All right, well, agreed. actually, that, that concludes part one. The last chapter, part one, was Acedia and the Identity Crisis. But let's, let's, let's start part two. Uh, this book is going to take a long time because, as I said earlier in the show, uh, there's just so much in here that needs to be commented on and, and needs to be discussed. So part two is called Man Belittle, and the first chapter is called The Hatred of Man. Kind of an interesting title for chapter. 
Who wants to go first? Who's got something on that one? I'm on page 157. I got something. I got, I got 162, so you beat me. Oh, well, then I have even before you because right. um, what he's setting up here in the beginning is that at the foundation of the hatred of man, this is page 155. Okay. At the foundation of the hatred of man is a refusal to accept oneself as a creature. Nevertheless, our creaturely state is our finest claim to glory and the fundamental condition of our freedom. And this creatureliness he talks about quite a bit in the beginning part here, because if you accept yourself as a creature made by God, then you also accept everything as a gift from God. You accept yourself, you accept your body, you accept nature, you accept that things are given in a certain way. And once you get rid of that, then man becomes this pliable, I can make him anything I want to kind of a thing. And what we see more and more is a contempt and a hatred for the way we really are, which is why we want to tinker with it. Yeah, well, if we're not creatures, then we're presumably just a random um, collection of, of, of meaningless atoms. Um, we, we, we are no different from every other thing out there and then we start treating each other um in the same way we would treat other things out there at least as creatures we we have a sense of being children of the creator and therefore brothers and sisters of each other you know that that actually orientates us uh, you know beyond ourselves into something be deeper and better you know without that we are just another thing and if we're just another thing we can treat each other like things yes and he's going to develop these ideas in the chapter as we go through here and especially this thought that if we are just, you know, random epiphenomena of this movement in the universe of material particles, uh, then we can remake ourselves according to our own image, our own idea. We're not the image of God. We just happen to be the way we are. But now we, we're taking control of evolution. And it's, as Carlos Sorrell will show, it's the, it's the temptation in the garden. Oh, don't, you know... Don't think about limitations, that you can't do this, you can't do that, not that fruit. No, no, no. Uh, you'll eat that, you'll like it, the fruit's good, and you'll be like God's, knowing good and evil. I mean, uh, so, well, let, let's go forward then. Uh, next page, anybody? I got 158. That, that trumps me. Okay, well, uh, and I'm going to skip lines here and just put together the three sentences which are not together in the book. Second paragraph on that page. It is of capital importance here to rediscover the notion of human nature as the condition for the flourishing of our freedom. So human nature and the laws that come from it do not restrict our freedom. They are what allows us to be truly free. He continues, the natural law is nothing other than the expression of what we profoundly are. And finally, I love this one, and you'll like it too, Joseph. Well, you will too, Vivian. In a way, the natural law is the grammar of our nature, that unless we understand that grammar, we can't write. You know, you try to write without grammar, <laughs> well, we get a lot of manuscripts like that, and we reject them pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, and again, this flows from if there isn't a creator, if it's just all randomly moving molecules, then there is no given nature. There is no given natural law that can be perceived 
through reason by reflecting on our nature. So this is where we are. We are, we are truly uh, at sea without an anchor. Well, Achille, you have a big yeah, mark. If, you know, if, if, if the natural law exists, regardless, of course, whether transhumanists and other people think it, it does, if it exists, it actually the, the paradox is the, uh, uh, the, the paradox of, of, of Edmund Burke saying that liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed. In other words, if we actually want to possess freedom, we have to be true to our nature. And if we try to defy or deny our nature, we'll actually enslave ourselves. Right. Right. And Father noticed my big mark, which is probably a good place to end. Okay. Uh, because the Cardinal does not miss his words. On the bottom of page 158, allow me to confide something to you. I am convinced that Western civilization is going through a lethal crisis. It has reached the limits of self-destructive hatred. I mean, those are pretty strong words. I don't, I can't... Think of any word stronger. Well, no, he, he actually, is. paradoxically, encouraging uh, in the sense this is, this hatred is self-destructive. In other words, that that within 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 the culture of death, there are the seeds of its own suicide, and which means we don't actually have to worry too much about overthrowing it because it's in the process of overthrowing itself. That's very comforting, Joseph. Thank you. Well, also, he will give more <laughs> hope as the chapter unfolds. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen of our viewership and auditorship uh, come back next week for the sequel to this wonderful chapter by Cardinal Robert Seurat. To receive email updates, study questions, and free access to our online forum, just visit formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Thanks for joining us.